This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Reports. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Ramon. And uh, another show, another good show, we hope, lined up for the week. Ramon, any feedback from the last one? Uh, unfortunately, the feedback has been very positive, much to my disappointment. Still no hate mail. Still no illicit... Tragic. ...death threats. Horrible thing. It's almost like South Africans are very well-behaved and mature. Can't, can't believe it. Can't believe it. Reasonable people. Reasonable people all around us. Who would have thought? So, uh, without further ado, uh, or ado, uh, this week we have uh, Gwen and Gwenya as our guest. And uh, Gwen uh, works for a global financial tech company. She's got an interest in current affairs. And uh, this has led her to write for the Mail and Guardian as a thought leader. So she recently became a policy fellow at the South African Institute of Race Relations, and she's also been quite involved in the sort of dialogue happening in South Africa uh, quite recently. Uh, got herself into a little bit of uh, hot water, I suppose. I don't know if she'd view it that way, but certainly uh, got a lot of flack on social media for writing some columns, which certainly went against uh, the general belief. So welcome to the show, Gwen. I don't know if you, how you want to respond to that. Thanks for having me here. Pleasure. So, uh, how's it been <laughs> in the last couple of weeks? You've written, you've written some interesting stuff. Well, I suppose hot water is only judged by, I suppose, what you're used to. Um, I, I think I expected the response when I, when I wrote those articles. Um, I have a history of having been involved in student politics before, so I've often experienced, you know, retaliation from those who had differing ideological opinions. And as you probably picked up from your last show as well, I think South Africans on the whole are quite tame in their casting of aspersions. So nothing that really you know, shook me as an individual, really. Why do you think people, not, not obviously not everyone, but why do you think certain people are so affronted by someone with a different idea from them? I've always said that I believe it's because it confronts them with an existential crisis, especially I think I face the most vitriol from other black South Africans. And I think, as I've often said before, the reason why collective identity such as blackness is so fragile, because it requires a large consensus from those who are black. So the moment individuals such as myself begin to disagree with concepts such as black pain or anything else that is supposed to be felt and thought by the entire black community, it obviously starts to present weak points and weak links in, in, the, in the ideology of there being a black identity. So I think it, it basically threatens their very, their very you know, being or existence. Do you think it's, it's the, the Dunning-Kruger effect of sorts? So the Dunning-Kruger effect is whereby people who are ignorant – do not understand that they are ignorant. And the more you tell them they are ignorant, the less they believe they actually are ignorant. It's like a self-referential vicious circle. But do you think people are just not read or they don't read a lot of stuff that disagrees with them? 
I think once we start getting into identity, you also get into areas of psychology. And I'm no psychological expert, but I think it has less to do with ignorance, which I feel is an educational perhaps term, than just a product of how somebody views themselves. I think a lot of people's identity a large part of it is defined by some sense of community or group or belonging. And they feel quite threatened by somebody who seeks to claw away at that. Whereas I've never felt my identity to be strongly tied either to being a woman or to being a black person. And so I've never felt if someone who was black or was woman is, you know, criticized or, you know, anything, you know, I suppose negative said against that person, seen it as an attack against myself. In other words, I've never felt any vicarious offense, which a lot of people seem to seem to feel. So I think that has less to do with hard academic knowledge than a sense of being and how you view yourself in the world. And I think it's quite complex to get down to how do we inculcate that sense of individuality in people. I suppose it's both a product um Again, I would stress that I'm not, you know, an expert in psychology, but a bit of both of, you know, nature and nurture. So who somebody intrinsically is and the way that they are brought up and their experiences. So, you know, we've, we seem to certainly have gone backwards, I would say, in this, in this whole debate, because we, we sit now where everything seems to be about group identity. Uh, it's uh, about blackness, it's about whiteness, it's about white privilege, it's about uh, feminism, it's about rape culture. It's, it's, uh, everything comes down to one single sort of group identity which you kind of have to fit into. Uh, you're not a psychologist, I know, but why, why do you think people are buying so much into this? I suppose it's, it's, it's what I've been saying is that, you know, it's very much um, a sense of identity for them, a sense of belonging. It's how you see yourself in, in the world. You know, to ask people to think differently is to threaten their very, their very being. I think once you deal with anything that is existential, why am I here? Um, where do I belong? People are always going to feel threatened if those foundational beliefs are, are challenged. All right. Uh, fair enough. So, is it a maturity thing to be able to have your beliefs challenged, to be able to have that existential crisis but not uh, go insane, not burn things down, not uh, you know, condemn other people to lose their jobs or, or whatever it is? Uh, when, you, when you get challenged with that, is, is, how, how do we get to the point where we deal with it in an appropriate fashion then? I think it does have to start much earlier on. I think when I, I mean, I can only draw from my own, I suppose, personal experiences and why I think I'm such a staunch liberal and don't identify with the group and instead have my own individual foundations for, for who I am. And I suppose it's, it's being in, or at least from an early age, um, being familiarized with critical thinking and being a skeptic, I suppose, and not accepting knowledge. And if I am, I don't want to journalize because that's exactly what I, I try to avoid. But on some level, I think in some more traditional communities, maybe largely in, you know, for, for black people growing up, if you're brought in an environment where you can't challenge your elders or authority, I think it starts to inculcate a sense in which whatever knowledge is passed down to you is accepted. But I think we need to somehow breed a sense of skepticism inside. And I don't know how we foster skepticism. I mean, I must admit from, from 
my past and my experience. I, I grew up, I would argue, quite sheltered. I didn't have a lot of friends who were different from me whatsoever. Oh. And then I, I read about libertarianism and, and anarchism and individuality. And, and I found once I judge people based on, on their character and who they are without incorporating them into a larger collective, life became a whole lot easier for me in terms of, of making friends, in terms of meeting people. Um, <clears throat> do you think people are scared of, of being judged individually or judging others individually? Or is it a very simple way to, to group them together? I don't know if people are scared, but I think there's definitely safety in numbers. I think it's much harder to say, I think this and therefore I'm right, or to justify a case on your own, as opposed to saying, well, X number of people also feel and think this way. And if so many people feel a particular way, then we must be right. I mean, it's the basis of sort of majoritarian thinking. There's a lot of safety in numbers. And I think that's why people hide in groups, because it's it's less safe to try and justify a position um, on your own. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned sort of liberalism and, and, mm. and you sort of, I think, view yourself quite as a classic liberal. Is that sort of correct? Yes. All right. So, you know, it's, it, because it's a difficult definition. Uh, that's, mm. that's why I bring it up. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's got kind of different meanings in different sort of spaces. Uh, and, uh, can you give us a bit more of a sense of what it means to you um, and what you think it should mean, really, I suppose? I mean, from a more ideological basis, it's simply just, you know, basically being able to fulfill your own life without harm to others. I think it always comes down to that. Whenever I've heard somebody define what it means being a liberal, I think at its very core it comes down to that. All right. Uh, so... And this is kind of where it gets a little bit complex for me because I, I find like that if you look at America's example, the elections mm. are going on now. And, and, and it's interesting because you'll find, uh, you know, what they'll define as a liberal uh, may not necessarily have those those types of views. I mean, certainly uh, someone like uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, wants to tax uh, the hell out of everyone, specifically the rich. Um he doesn't want to leave them alone. And then on the other side of the coin, you've, you've got sort of staunch conservatives who who do have some quite sort of liberal ideas mm. until religion gets involved. And then when religion gets involved, it kind of muddies the waters a lot because it sort of instructs you to do things to other people. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, to me, that's where there's a quite a large ideological divide in trying to understand where, where liberalism is these days. I agree. I think it also has to do with whether you include property rights in your definition of, of being a liberal. So I think the definition that I've given views or, or tends to be circumscribed mostly just to self-definition. So being able to lead your life without interference, whether from the group or from government, etc. And then it's, I think it's then a separate conversation about, well, what is interference and how far do we take, do we take that? I mean, in libertarian theory, there's the non-aggression principle. So basically, your rights extend as far as they do, unless they harm someone else's rights right. in that regard. Now, obviously, if we look at the state, taxation is an infringement of rights, and that's a separate issue altogether. But would you argue something like the non-aggression principle is is, is a valid principle for most people to lead? So we don't care if 
you're gay and grow weed in your garage. You're not harming anyone. You're not, you're not a menace to society. Should we leave those people alone to do as they wish? I do agree with that, but perhaps where I slightly disagree is, I mean, I'm not a staunch libertarian, so I actually do believe in, in taxation. Um, socialist. <laughs> as, as do I. Both of you are socialists. Uh, no, not completely. Because I think there's a difference between, I mean, we can obviously engage in some sort of intellectual masturbation where we pretend we live in a completely, you know, we're starting an island of people and we can come together. Let's say an island of... You know, if you were to start an island today of people, let's say of a, of the same socioeconomic status, yeah, all your so friends, we all have exactly, and you know, same education level, um, assets, etc. Then you can start to go back to a more hard libertarianism, which probably doesn't include taxation. But that's not how most societies have evolved. So you have to take into account that the situation that we're in right now has huge imbalances that I don't believe can be corrected by leaving them alone, which you would want to do if things had started off on an equal footing. Sure, but, I mean, but we can agree that something like apartheid was statism as, as, as its worst. Yes. We, we can understand that the state is not a force for good. So yes, but again, I, I don't as I, I don't like broad saves like it's not a force for good. What does what does that mean? I mean, I think there are there are very good uses of the state. I I do believe in having a state. I think the state can be employed towards good ends for for society, and especially maybe to to, to touch on it in terms of what I think is the proper role of the state. Um, I do believe in a free market, but I don't think a free market magically comes into being when you have had imbalances. I think we actually need to regulate a free market into being if okay. one doesn't currently exist. Okay, so so how do you do that? Uh, how do you regulate a free market when, by definition, a free market shouldn't be regulated? You know, how do you how do you get to it's chicken and egg kind of stuff? Because how do you get to the point of that? It, it's 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 kind of difficult because your your free market isn't going to flourish with overregulation essentially. Well, I'm not sure if the definition of a free market necessarily has to mean that there's no regulation. For me, a free market means that you you have a competitive space where players can engage with each other fairly and where there you know players can basically enter in a market where there aren't any sort of artificial barriers to entry, etc. And sometimes existing players in the market can create those artificial barriers that block others and therefore their behavior is anti-competitive. So you have to ask yourselves when some players have become so powerful as to be in a position to impose anti-competitive practices, how do we remove those anti-competitive practices in order to ensure that players can once again compete fairly with one another? And this is where I think if we're talking maybe in the business space and in, in, you know, in more economic or financial markets where the government where government regulation has a role so, so would you argue that apple for example is is a uncompetitive monopoly because people actually choose to buy it out of their own volition that's a good product and they're doing it by providing value and service to their customers and their customers freely buy their products and by that happening they're becoming a global monopoly on, say, cell phones. So one of the myths, I believe, when people talk about competition and competitive markets is to vilify monopolies. There's nothing in and of itself that's wrong with a monopoly. It's about 
what a monopoly has power to do. And if it does then, in fact, engage in anti-competitive practices by abusing its monopoly position. So a monopoly that does not abuse its monopoly position by engaging in anti-competitive practices, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not familiar with every single practice that Apple might employ in all the jurisdictions in which sure, just an you know, example. It, it operates. Mm. But I think sometimes companies can do that. For example, where you, you know, often in markets you have an entire supply chain and often companies, let's say like Apple, I'm not saying Apple has been involved in such practices, can perhaps, because of its strong position, let's say they go to a cell phone retail store and say, well, we, we can, you can only sell um, Apple products. Not really because, and then some people might say, well, surely if a shop owner decides that he would only, he only wants to sell Apple products, then he should be allowed to do so. And I don't think there's a problem in doing that. But when it's the, the provider like Apple who enforces a contract that says if you sell Apple, you cannot sell any other products, I think that does become anti-competitive because they abuse their power in order to, um, a strong arm, um, Companies that have, you know, less less negotiating power and to agreeing to unfavorable terms. I mean, we can agree that that you know large corporations are not bastions of moral integrity at the best of times. But I think a, a better example would be state-owned enterprise, something like ESCOM, in which we have no control mm. of of the board. We we have to buy what they produce. Their prices are not they, – they're regulated by the state only, not by market forces. I mean, that monopoly is, is a problem because no one else can compete with them due to state power. This raises up the question of what you call natural monopolies, and I think some sectors do need them. Because there are some – I'm not arguing that electricity or the provision of electricity is, was one of those sectors – I'm, I'm not too, I'm not that familiar with the, with the sector to be able to say, but the concept of natural monopoly is that the the resources required to establish yourself as a player in the field are so high that you're only going to do it if you know that you have an you know captive audience or you can capture the entire market. Otherwise, it becomes unprofitable to do so with other competitors. So I think there are scenarios, and this is where ideology meets pragmatism. And this is where I suppose it's, it can be problematic to be com- incredibly dogmatic. So I think it's useful to define terms and say I'm a liberal, I'm a libertarian. But I think it's even more useful to deal with the issues as we're sort of doing now on a case-by-case basis and saying mm. in this particular issue, can we make an argument where in the liberal spectrum can we lie here in a way that is feasible? Because I think feasibility is also important. We're not in the business of just writing maybe academic journals or articles and, you know, theorizing about these things. We're interested in how they can be actually implemented in policy. Yeah. So, I mean, I like the pragmatism. Uh, you know, Ramon's a, an anarchist, um, and I just think pragmatically, even if I agreed with that, it, it just, I don't see how it works pragmatically. Um, so, I mean, on the liberalism front, we're sort of saying yes to taxation, but, it, you know, in a reasonable sort of sense, I suppose. That's kind of my understanding. I don't know how you define reasonable, but that's... Uh, no one knows. <laughs> um, and then uh, certainly, uh, you know, you, you're saying yes to the free market, but with some regulation where it breeds some sort of fairness. Uh, is that kind of, am I on the... Yes, regulation should be employed towards the ends of creating a, you know, a free market. So, so it's a bit of a, a Rawlsian view. 
Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, on to okay, economics aside, I'm sure most people aren't terribly interested. On to social issues of right. liberalism. And social justice. Oi, if there was a misnomer, that is the word. I lost my train of thought. A social policy based on liberalism. In an ideal society, we so we agree non-aggression is is very important. Yes. Uh, for for social purposes. So, what is your view on 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 bigoted people who don't want to partake in say say a wedding venue does not want to to have a, a gay marriage at their venue? This actually is this has happened uh, in America and in South Africa. Actually, there was a there's a venue. Uh, in Johannesburg, which uh, I think it was last year sometime, refused to to host a gay wedding. And, and there are a few issues with that. So you can go to, to court and somehow a private contract is actually a public one and the court ruled in favor of the couple. But a second more nuanced issue is if, if bigots have to hide their bigotry, you're in, inadvertently enriching them by using their services. Where do you stand on something like that? I don't believe in legislating tolerance. I mean, it's that's really the the bottom line. I think people can do whatever they want with their with their private business. If I run a wedding venue, I can make any arbitrary laws I want. I can say only people with long hair can get married here, as is my right as the owner of that of that establishment. I'm, I think sometimes with these with these issues, I I find it difficult to comment because I'm almost at a loss as what more there is to say. I I don't understand people who who might share a different view. Well, the, the, the problem is is that you you're, you're in the minority. You yes. you you really are in the minority of people who would say things like, you know, if you're homophobic and you won't have gay weddings at your venue, then fine. Be homophobic and don't have gay weddings. No, yes, the, it's the your ma- venue. Uh, no, I agree with yes. you. But, <laughs> but the the majority, majority, uh, you know, the the loud uh, minority, at least, uh, we don't know who, what the majority really thinks. Yeah. And and based on recent surveys, it, it would seem that everyone's kind of a bit more yeah. together than 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 is mm-hmm. they're given credit for. But uh, you know, the the they the very loud sort of people on social media, the social justice warriors. Well, have you believe that these are the sort of worst offenses done to men, uh, and uh, that they are huge problems? And I, this is this is why you know I, I hear you saying you you don't know what more there is to say, but apparently there's tons more to say because these people take up all their time fighting these issues. Well, we also need to separate. I mean, I'm saying there shouldn't be any legislation that forces you, for example, to marry a couple if you're if you're homophobic and you don't mm. believe in gay marriage. But that's quite different to me saying I don't think people have a right to stand and picket outside of your business and say you oh, should they marry. Absolutely do exactly. So of course, you know, if you if you want to basically practice something that is unpopular, you have to be willing to face the the opposition, which includes possible protest. Etc. Against your business practices, but that's quite different to an argument about whether they can be taken to court. Okay. And so it was really that that I was saying. Yeah, I'm against. So you don't want to. You don't want to use social the justice warriors. Unfortunately, my being a liberal means I also have to afford them the right of being able to picket outside that person. But business. what's interesting is, so organisations like Twitter have now clamped down on what you can say, because if you trigger a social justice warrior. And they complain about you, they'll remove your free speech. Uh, yes. So there's a silencing of 
this sort of openness to differing views, even if you disagree with a differing view, because, uh, you know, to use the sort of racism uh, examples that we've seen in South Africa recently, which have been highly publicized, I just don't feel there was any value in the in most of the conversation that was had there, simply because it was very aggressive, very violent. Uh, it essentially probably has caused the racists to go underground and back into the closet, where they will continue to be racist and they will continue to fester. Uh, they're not going to change their behavior or their attitudes, in my opinion, certainly not in that darkness. Um, and the only way to really uh, fix these things is to bring them out into the light and try to deal with them in a rational sort of sense. So um, what's your kind of approach and, and feeling about that? No, I agree. I think any battleground has to take place in terms of ideas, argumentation, building upon from one logical premise to another. And you're never going to do that if you shut people out of, out of the conversation. But I think also what we must accept, those of us who hold minority views, is that unfortunately we can be silenced out just by the sheer numbers of those who are opposed to, to our beliefs. We have to accept that as well. I mean, if if you're going to hold a view that only, you know, your small circle of friends shares, and the whole of Twitter comes down on you like one <laughs> giant mob, there's not really much you can do about that. Is is that a is that a problem though? I mean, it's you know, it's that whole majoritarian sort of thing. Is is is, is majoritarianism? I don't even know if I'm using the correct word, yeah. but is is that healthy? No, it's definitely a problem. But if we're going to say that each of those majoritarians are allowed to the individual view to oppose you and they come together in the opposition of your views, then there's not much we can do about it. But I mean, what is nice is that <clears throat> excuse me, Institute of Race Relations released a report, I believe it was this week, yes. on, on race relations, funny enough. And what is very interesting is that a lot of the people who were well, surveyed most of them were black, a fair share of urban and rural. I think about 10% were whites and about 10% were Indian or Chinese. And racism as an issue in their lives was number nine on a list of 10. And obviously number one was unemployment, then there was crime, housing, all sorts of socioeconomic things. Why does the media insist that racism is such a big issue? It's because of how people have reacted quite soon after particular events. And I think this is where perhaps sometimes polling, I'm not at all trying to discredit the findings of the, the you know, Institutes of Race Relations. I, I, I mean, I, I perfectly agree. I think most of the time in my interactions with people, I don't think people seem to think that, you know, we're heading for some kind of big implosion. And the race that, war, uh, 2016. Yes, it's, it's, it's just, happening. I don't think many people believe <laughs> that that's where we're going to end up. But that being said, there's a difference between polling somebody. If I poll you right now out of context, you know, but removed from any particular event, I think you're going to be a lot more sober-minded. If we get a you know, group of black people together, and perhaps I would be proved wrong, but I'd, I mean, I'd wager a comfortable bet on this. Maybe showed them, you know, a video of Sarafina, asked them to read Steve Biko's book, <laughs> write what I like, and then polled them about certain views. I think it would be slightly maybe different. I think if you, you know, the media and, polit and politicians read the country's sentiment or get a sort of social barometer 
out of very heated and antagonistic or provocative events. They don't do it when the storm has died down. And I think there's a huge difference in how people react to those kind of questions. Well, arguably, they also initiate a few of those uh, wars, yes. so to speak. But don't, don't engage in a bit of conspiracy <laughs> theory. Isn't that, isn't that uh, potentially quite dangerous Given that you know something like racism is is currently being used as an entire election strategy, so you, you know it's 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 just it's it's an issue which, as Ramon says, based on that report, is not one of the bigger problems. I I, I mean I I get I agree with you. I think you would win your bet uh, that uh, in certain circumstances people would probably rate rate it higher. But overall, in their day-to-day life, it's not one of the bigger issues. And yet, mm-hmm. it's, it's so intangible that when you use it as an election strategy, as an example, um, there's, not, there's, there's no positive to, to, to doing that. And it becomes so dangerous. Uh, it, 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 it sort of overtakes the narrative. I, I feel like uh, it's being pushed as, uh, as I say, as an election strategy. I feel like it's being pushed as a, a changing of university strategy. Uh, I feel like every issue that uh, comes up in the country, many of which are valid issues, uh, we're not attacking the correct problem. We're just bringing up race as, as the main concern. So is it, is it, a, is it a, a flaw? Is it a danger to just focus on that? Of course, but I mean, it perfectly fits. Um, it's perfect. It's sort of the perfect storm for the ANC, of course. I don't see anyone, uh, you know, convincing them not to focus on race as an Just issue. to say, she said ANC, not the white people. <laughs> Gwen said ANC. Um, yes, yeah, so I don't, I don't see anyone being able to convince them not to. As I've written one of my articles, it's really an issue the DA cannot win. So it's really the perfect issue for a black majority party to try and sow racial divisions and say that's the defining issue for this election. Since we've sort of strayed into the politics, uh, you know, you say that the DA cannot win. Um, well, cannot win the, the race. The race. Issue. The race. Is it? It seems like the DA can't win the race issue, and this has been going on a long time between them and the ANC because it's, even when they raise good points and they mm. they have they have. There's a lot of validity to what they say. Uh, the go-to defense always seems to be, well, you're a white party and all that kind of stuff. If every single member of the ANC in terms of in, of, of the DA in parliament were to be black, would, do you think that'll stop? you think the, 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 the ANC will drop it or do you think then it'll become a, no, well, you know, you, you may be black, but you think like white people? Exactly. It'll always be, well... Maybe you may be an entirely white, I mean, sorry, an entirely black party, but it really it's these nefarious white people in the background somewhere who control the puppet strings. So, and I mean, already right now, if the DA could win that issue, they would be winning it because it is already the most diverse party in parliament. So clearly it's an, it's an issue that they should be able to win. It's a far more diverse party than the ANC is. But there's an inherent irony of the ANC being a, a, a proudly black party and they have every right to do so. But somehow, if you are for another party, you are the puppet of so-called white masters. I mean, that, that's deeply patronizing. How, how do you – I don't ask to speak for the ANC, but how can they reconcile that even to themselves? It doesn't make much sense at all. 
Well, it's, it's exactly this group thinking, this idea that if you aren't with some kind of black collective, then you are brainwashed or aren't thinking for yourself. And as I've always, well, at least when I wrote that article, there's no intellectual tradition of the black individuals essentially about that, that, you know, they sort of rob you of your autonomy or your sense of agency the moment you don't agree with whatever majoritarian black view is currently in vogue at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, I, 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 Ramon says it's patronizing. I think it's racist because it, it actually, it assumes, and I'm talking to anyone it talks about, but if you say, you know, uh, blackness as an example, it assumes everyone has the same view, which at the beginning you said is just simply not true. And as the minute you, for example, as a black woman, don't have that view, uh, immediately the whole ideology falls to pieces. But to assume everyone has the same, is the same because of their race, is almost the definition of racism. It's 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 disliking, you know, a race because that you assume something about every person who has that particular skin color. It's it's illogical. Um, but can I just add yeah. um, onto that point? I think, on the one hand, if we want to have a discussion properly, I think we have to concede that there are perhaps some shared experiences based on race. So that is not at all what I've been trying to, you know, to disagree with. I think there probably are shared experiences, but it's about, so how do we move on from that? And I think the the way to, to remove, you know, societal stigmatization based on race or prejudice that is racial, racially based, we have to start engaging with each other as individuals. So I think the, sort of my aversion to group politics is not so much because you could not put together some kind of correlation between particular events or experiences and the color of the skin of that person. It's about, so what do we do about that and what kind of society are we trying to achieve? And do you fight basically prejudice with collectivism or do you fight prejudice with a clear understanding of, you know, just individuals? But what do you think of this uh, colorblind manifestation uh, it's something I'm quite sympathetic to, but I uh, have been rebuffed, and, and quite rightly, that it is difficult to be colorblind in, in a society that was defined by race for centuries. It just surprises. I mean, it seems quite juvenile that people are actually have an, argu an argument about being colorblind. I thought we were all on the same page, that it's, it's, it's not a literal expression. It's not that you will look at me and not see that I'm black. Of course, that's, <laughs> that's an, a ludicrous claim. I think it was colorblind to association. So you don't look at me and see that my skin color is black. And from that, make, yes, exactly. Yes. You don't deduce, deduce that you anything. must think in a certain way or act in a certain exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, so and, it's got and nothing to do with the real. And, well, and once again, this comes back to my problem with, with this whole sort of group think, this whole whiteness, blackness, uh, white privilege, uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, everyone's favorite topic at the moment. Maybe I just feel that cause I'm a white guy. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the white privilege is the same problem. It assumes every white person has the same privilege and that the, their yes. lived experiences are all the same in a good way, uh, which is just simply false. Uh, you know, it's, 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 this, it's the same falsity in, in reverse. You agree with that? I do. Yeah. All right, well, not much debate there. <laughs> uh, but, but do you think white privilege has any basis whatsoever? does have a basis. My argument is if it does have a basis, you can explain that through economic or historical analysis. 
we do understand why more white people are employed because, well, they are more skilled because they were, you know, cut off Allowed from, to be. from the majority of people who couldn't compete with them. I mean, that's an economic and a historical argument. Well, I don't think people who are talking about white privilege care about why that's the case. I mean, that seems to be saying that you know the causes of white privilege. I don't know if that's the real concern, if, that, if we know the causes. I would say the concern is what do we do about it? And that would always worries well, me in the it's, conversation. It's interesting you say that because I don't think they're at all concerned about what we do about it. Because really? I'm yet to hear a cogent argument which says, all right, white privilege or white people have it. This is what you want to, this is what we want to do about it because it almost feels as if uh, it's such a extreme sort of view to have that the next step is one of, well, white people have money, so everyone who's white must take 50% of their savings and deposit into the government account, which will then be redistributed, or you must halve your land, or you know, I, which, which is fine because I would actually feel more comfortable with that if you actually propose some sort of solutions and I could go, all right, uh, I kind of get that, I agree or I disagree, and let's have a discussion about it. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, Desmond Tutu brought up the, the, the rich tax and the white tax uh, some time back, uh, which he believed should exist. And I, while I don't agree with it, I, I still think at least it's a solution. Uh, I'm yet to hear from the white privilege brigade. All I've heard from them is we must acknowledge it. We must check our privilege. Now, that doesn't mean anything to me because even if I were to accept that it's a real thing, which I don't, but even if I accepted that it was and I said, fine, I accept it and I, I'm checking it and I'm going to be, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to acknowledge the fact that when I am in a room with a black person that I'm automatically in a better position than they are in every respect, even if we are in the same clothes, drive the same car, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to accept that when I go home, I just have a life that's been easier to get to where I am, et cetera, et cetera. Even if I did that, what difference does that make to our society? So you get a whole bunch of white people living with guilt. How does that help the poor people who have nothing? It just, it's just not a realistic, logical argument to me. Well, exactly. And I think you've touched on a lot of so what scenarios of what potentially could be done about it. And I think it's, it's really those that I have a problem with. So one, I have a problem with, so what, what do we do about white privilege? And all of the answers are unsatisfactory to me as a liberal. Mm. But I also have a problem with saying that necessarily, as you've pointed, that all white people experience white privilege. So I can concede quite comfortably, quite comfortably to the term of white privilege because just because, so you can say there are a set of experiences that only white people will experience and that's fine but that's not the same as saying all white people will, ex will have those yes. experiences okay all right fine then i i so i was shaking my head for you know the, <laughs> yes. an audio thing so i was shaking my head because i initially didn't agree with that but I, I do agree with that it's it's not you can say that there are specific yes. white experiences but not that all white people have those and you can say exactly. the same thing about black people yes uh, or any uh, group i suppose well but it's highly contextual i mean if i go to rosebank mall there's a, a diversity of people. I feel quite comfortable. If I go to uh, the high courts, as I do quite often, you walk the streets of Joburg as a white man, you feel a bit, you feel like people are looking at you. But it's completely contextual in, in any yeah. case, right? I mean, uh, if, uh, as a, I assume as a black person, if you go watch Bulls vs. Stormers at Loftus, that's an uncomfortable position to be in. But if I, as a white person, go to King's Wellatini's 
mansion for, for, for lunch or supper, I would also feel out of place. I mean, the, the, the nuance is, well, I think it depends on context. I hardly want to make the case on behalf of the so-called social justice warriors, but I think they would argue is that there are far more spaces in which, you know, as a, potentially as a white person that you can feel comfortable. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, or at least those are the productive spaces. That's quite a contentious word to say productive, but yeah, it'll access probably to capital. Be, yes, exactly. Or centers of power where the economy is, etc. Well, yeah, like an argument they make is that as a black manager in a corporate, in, in a corporate job, they are meant to change the way they speak. They have to change the way they, they interact with other people. Do you think that's a, a valid claim? I mean, because in essence, corporate culture is, well, we know what it is. It's fairly bland. No one has any real autonomy. And it's, it's relatively universal. Yes. Uh, it may have come from a Western setup, but it, it, it's, it's a universal Western setup. I don't think anyone said, well, we're going to make an office work like this because this is the way white people work. Or is that just because I'm not recognizing that originally the office was set up by white people? Is that, am I being unfair? So. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's complex because, of course, I think people basically develop relationships based on shared with interests, hobbies, etc. I mean, I would to some extent agree that people who've had certain life experiences would find the corporate culture a bit more welcoming. But I'd argue, as I always do, that it's probably far more a socioeconomic or class thing than it mm. is a racial, a racial thing. So, or so, racial issue. So we, I mean, you've you raised the class point, and if you don't mind, I'd really like to segue into that because, I mean, my theory is that people are far more classist than they are racist. Yes. Uh, and that probably is our biggest obstacle to overcome, sociologically speaking, or yes. socially speaking. Uh, you know, it's it, we, we've got class issues, not not really race issues. Am I yeah. kind of on? Well, exactly, and that's and that's why I believe that in some ways the EFF is good for South Africa. I would never vote for the EFF, <laughs> but I'd much rather argue with somebody about nationalisation and what is the best means for ensuring economic prosperity for people than having these conversations with people about about white privilege and black pain i think they're far more productive and white tears, apparently yes That's white tears yes i think they're far more productive conversations i mean there's a great economist whom you might know called thomas sowell yes and he wrote he writes a lot about economics and and class in fact and he says the average black male in in harlem shares the same characteristics as a Scottish man in a council house. Yeah. They have the same propensity to, to drug use, to violence, to promiscuity. So he, he argue, his argument is class culture is a far more determinant factor of a, of a society than any other factor. So you, I assume you agree with that. I do. Okay. All right, well, lots of agreeing. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. John, we, this is supposed to be a fighting podcast. <laughs> I don't know what's happened. I don't know what's happened. Uh, more, more reasonable South Africans. Uh, all right. So, what do you? How do you feel about merit and and you know, with regards to specifically things like uh, labor, labor and employment? Uh, because you know, and this has been a tripping point for the DA specifically, who can't really make up their minds where they stand here. Uh, and I think it's. A, a, from my sense, from being not involved with, with the party at all, uh, is that 
I think they're trying to, on one side, make the majority of people happy. Uh, and on the other side, they're trying to stick to some liberal principles. Uh, so where do we stand on the best person gets the job, irrelevant of their race, religion, etc.? I obviously believe in, in having a meritocracy. I think the problem with B is that it starts too far, too far down the line. I think it's too late at the point of appointing someone for a particular post or serving out a tender to say, well, we're going to make this based on your, you know, your past experiences, whether you're previously disadvantaged or not. I think it has to start much lower down. So we have to start with correcting basic education in South Africa, et cetera, to ensure that people can compete fairly when they apply for jobs, when they apply for tenders, et cetera. So, so the equal opportunity comes basically from childhood, getting an equal opportunity to an education, yes. getting an equal opportunity to social services. Yes, but you can't fix or fiddle with the outcomes. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, I mean – I mean, I, I heavily agree with that, and, and um, I see it regularly fiddle with the outcomes in medicine, as an example, where uh, there are, frankly, uh, jobs not given to people just based on their race. They are more than qualified for, that, for the job, but, uh, or gender, in fact. Uh, gender is another, another big area of concern, and, and certainly it's not to say that we don't need to address those, those um, inequities. But uh, in some areas, we've overshot it, in fact. Uh, medicine, as an example, on average countrywide now has 70% of its graduates are female each year. Um, mm-hmm. That's making the majority of doctors in the country females, uh, which… Well, do you think that's a result of policy or is just naturally occurring? I mean, I, pr- I have no problem with imbalances in and of themselves. If, if they happen naturally. Yes. Uh, it's not it, – well, I can tell you in the areas I know of, it's not, it's not natural. It's, it's manipulated. Uh, and it, it, it does sometimes become problematic, you know, in, 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 in terms of just people being able to access employment, uh, in terms of uh, having enough staff in a specific area where you're trying to deliver a resource, so healthcare as an example, uh, which, which can become difficult. You have to uh, – balance the the problems i don't want to get too much into healthcare here which is <laughs> my my area my field of expertise but you have to balance service delivery but you, and you also have to understand that uh, women are by fact of biology are going to have to go give birth and that takes a period of time and they take time off work well by facts of biology and choice i for one never intend to yeah okay <laughs> so it's it, it, it usually a choice thing but but yes. but we would agree that the majority of the human population chooses uh, to procreate Yes. Um, so, well, we hope they choose. Um, <laughs> well, some uh, of them. Uh, yeah, it's not always a conscious decision. But Social justice warriors, please don't procreate. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so, so you know, the, these are areas where, where these, these sort of attempts to sort of make everything equitable uh, mm-hmm. end up kind of backfiring. It's, uh, it's not always very helpful. Yeah, the thing with, with a lot of females in the medical field, as they are autonomous beings, they make choices. So, so for example, the trend is for a female doctor not to be a surgeon because it's, it's a lot of work. You're going to get up. the surgeons attacking you now, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. They don't, it takes up a lot of time. They work 20 hour days. It's, it's very hard work. And if, if 
a lady wishes to have a child, she wants to work half days. These are all natural choices to make, and I think they should be able to make them. I, I just want to say that I, I, I am quite critical of medicine in that it has not at all adjusted itself in over a 100 years to accommodate any kind of family life for either men or women. So, you know, training in itself uh, and the whole medical field is very problematic in that it makes women, for example, choose between their career or their kids when it actually doesn't have to. Um, but that's, I think that's a separate discussion. That's just virtue signaling, to, John. Uh, it's not <laughs> virtue signaling. But it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's a separate discussion to sort of, over, of packing the field with, uh, with too many women or packing the field, uh, with too many people of any one race just to kind of look good. Yeah. But I mean, let's get down to, sorry. So I just get, wanted to add one last sorry. thing, um, on that discussion is I think also it might, I wouldn't legally enforce it necessarily, but, one, for example, if I had a company, I might say, I think it is a social good for certain people to be given a chance because of their circumstances. So I might very well choose to employ somebody who maybe is not the most qualified candidate that I have, but displays potential. But then again, as I'm saying, it would be something that I think is a social good. And I think they should be given that opportunity, but it's not to say that you would legislate for it. So I think that's a nuance that doesn't always come up in these discussions because my hard line position as a liberal is mm. to try veer away from enforcing or legislating um, sort of normative or ends or anything that I believe ought to be done or is good. And I would just advocate for it. So I would personally do it. I would encourage others to do it, but it's not the same as saying, I believe it should be legally enforced. If it's, it, some are going to say though, if you don't, you know, if you don't enforce those things, uh, they just don't happen because people won't do as you did or would do by employing someone because you think they deserve a chance. They they will just rather pass them over and, and take the guy who's had all the opportunities in life. So I suppose that's the, the big debate about, about if you don't enforce it, it just won't happen. Is that, is that fair? I suppose it is fair, but again, I suppose if I take a hard line, I don't believe you should force people to make decisions that are unprofitable for their business. But I mean, the main problem with, with quotas and, and BE, this is only looking at people who want to be employed. These are only employees. Where's, where's the, the incentive to become a, an entrepreneur or a business owner in all this? You've touched on issue that I feel quite passionately about. Excellent. I Great. think that is entirely the point. I mean, that's a, a very good point to make. And it also comes down to this whole fees must fall movement. We've never really had a discussion to interrogate why is high education this ultimate good that it's being made out to be why is high education or everyone having access to university education particularly here going to be the cure for all of society's well, I problems mean, the difference between a pizza and a, uh, a pizza and a ba graduate you know you know the joke no a, a pizza feeds a family of four <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the assumption that because you went to a university and you got a degree that you suddenly exactly. are successful is, uh, it's a dis disproven notion. It's, it's, it's just not valid. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, I think, it, you know, doctors, accountants, lawyers, and, and probably engineers are almost guaranteed some form of employment. But, uh, that's probably uh, around about 30% of what any university, 30, 40% of what any university does. There's a whole bunch of other stuff which doesn't guarantee employment. It just creates, a university creates thinking. 
Yes. Isn't I mean, isn't that really what universities exist? Isn't that the big problem with safe spaces on universities? Blocking oh, yes, up that's thinking. That's a big irony. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's But but why do you think tertiary education is deemed to be so important? I just find that these students who are protesting, it's it's very ideological, firstly. But secondly, they, they truly believe that once they get their degree in whatever, BA in political studies, that they can like join a firm and they'll be paid what they want to be well, paid. Well, exactly. I think that's, that's, that's the reason it's being pursued is because it's seen as a passport to a better life. But I think it's important to consider the fact there's not everyone – is going to get into university and probably not everyone should go to university. There's other avenues of creating wealth or success for yourself. And those aren't really being, being addressed. Okay. So uh, uh, ideas, you say you're passionate about it. How would you address it? Well, I'm not saying address in terms of as politicians might in legislation, Mm. but just purely that we don't think enough about entrepreneurship in South Africa, it seems as everyone is geared towards this path of, you know, schooling and then tertiary education and, get and then employed. getting a job somewhere. And there aren't there. enough people thinking of being the ones to create jobs. But we're not a fan of that word create in South Africa, I find in general, even in terms of the way that we speak about economics. It's always this fixed pie that must be divvied up between, um, you know, people. So taking from the rich to give to the poor. It's what, never a conversation what? about how do we expand that pie? How you, do we grow wealth? You mean so money isn't more. fine? not <laughs> um, you laugh but people actually believe that they that believe it that it's a set finite amount and and that's why they believe in the rich and the poor argument and the, that paradigm because if you don't take from the rich to give to the poor then the poor will remain poor i mean that is completely false well, but consequently i don't have any problem with people being poor and let me quickly um, add a <laughs> disclaimer to that is that i think the word poor is always relative. So it's relative to those who have more than you. So it's about how do we define those who are poor? So if we ever could reach a society where the poorest person was somebody who still had, let's say, shelter, was able to basically define the course of their life and basically their birth didn't determine then their future prospects, I would say, well, then that that's fine. So I'm not, I, I think there's a lot of um, conversation and, the whole discussion about being poor ties into the obsession about inequality. I don't think inequality is a problem. I think poverty is a problem. So I think when people can't meet their basic needs or are basically forced into, I mean, it's essentially serfdom when you put to that extent because it means that when you're born to a particular circumstance, there's absolutely no way in your lifetime that you can ever escape it and become anything more or anything else. Mm. And I think that is a problem if we're true, if we are liberals and we believe in freedoms and we believe in self-definition. But Eliminating poverty is not the same as, as inequality. Well, arguably, you need some inequality in a society for, for, for many reasons, but one of them would be for, for aspirational reasons, so to speak. So someone at the lower rung of the ladder can look at the top and say, yeah, I want to be there. How do I get there? So, so inequality has its uses. And second of all, perfect equality sure, doesn't exist at all. Sure, and I don't think you all. can grow – you can – I suppose some people might even argue, why do you need to grow? Why do you need more? That's an entirely different conversation. Sure. But purely from a financial point of view, if everyone is equal and you wanted to start a business, you'd have nobody to ask or get the money from or to invest in your idea because nobody had has more money than you do. So mm. you kind of – I suppose somebody might argue, well, what's wrong with that? I but, haven't developed a view on that yet. I mean, the concept of equality is – it's always a bit fraught for me because are we equal? 
I mean, the, the, the reality is I think people think of that in a human rights context, and certainly we're all equal as humans, and we all deserve the under same the things. Under the law. Uh, not, and just under uh, – Well, no, equality under the law. That, that's the defining principle. All right, but I'm saying in terms of, you know, I think people often view equality in, in a sense of that we're all the same. Uh, and some sort of sort of sameness, and and I just we're not. I, I think that the wonderful thing about humans is that we have great differences, and uh, our sort of differences are, are, are what are what makes us wonderful as, as a species. So so I find I find the the whole concept sometimes maybe how how equality is misinterpreted, perhaps uh, a problem. Well, yeah, I mean, people are, are more worried about about groups of people at the top and the bottom. But they, they fail to understand that throughout history, those individuals in those groups have, have changed over time. The richest people 20 years ago, 30% of them have moved down to the middle class. And, you know, 30% of the middle class have moved up to the upper class. And the poverty, the individuals in the in so-called poverty region, they've, there's a mass movement between classes over a period of time. Yes, and that's what matters. Yeah. Exactly. So it's about poverty and what you, I think you're touching on is social mobility. Are Absolutely. people able to move from one rung, one, you know, rung in society to the next mm. as opposed to whether or not people are all equal? Okay, so final point, uh, voting. Okay, so I believe in it. Uh, Ramon does not. Uh, what are you, what's your sort of views on, on voting, given what we discussed with majoritarianism as well, you know, well, can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, I mean, Ramon, do you want to go on why you don't believe in voting? Well, voting is acquiescing to the system that oppresses you, right? The state. Um, right. So if I don't vote, I can complain about your vote because you have acquiesced to that system. I have not taken part in that system. I'm here by accident of birth, for example. So if you if you do vote, you can't really complain because you have bought into that system and you're culpable, so to speak, of whatever consequence happens within that political system. That's my argument for not voting. I think that argument is flawed. Whether you shared my view of you believe in a government, but one that is perhaps limited government, and I think it's flawed even if you believe in no government, as you probably do, because if you have a system in place, and you you'd probably have to find a way to vote yourself out of that out of that system. So for argument's sake, the only way an <laughs> anarchic society could ever come about is if one that currently has a government basically votes, you know, decides to legislate away the government. Or, or you have a military coup and then you have something like Somalia. Right. Yes, which, by the way, has a, a larger growth rate than South Africa. But it's, a low, it's, it's off, a, lo, it's off <laughs> a lower base. has a lower crime rate than Detroit yeah. and has faster internet connection than most countries in Africa. But, so but Detroit's got Obama and, <laughs> and Somalia's still a shithole. Somalia's All right. much better than some places in this country. <laughs> no, well, my definitive stance, I definitely think people should vote. And while we're on it, this weekend is the registration <laughs> weekend, so people should go out and register. And if you vote, you can't complain. That's my argument. Uh, well, I, I take the opposite. Well, the opposite if you vote you. for a party of corruption, then you can't complain. Oh, you see, but here's another issue now. So, yeah, it's cool to vote, and then I tell people, cool, I'm going to go vote EFF. I say, oh, no, you can't do that. That's a bit strange. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. <laughs> you see? <laughs> 
All right, so uh, I'm actually cutting Ramon off because we're running out of time, and, and he, he's, he's going to go on with his illogical don't vote. I agree with Gwen. Uh, go out, uh, get, get registered, and, and vote. Um, I, I do think it's an important part uh, of, uh, of our society. Uh, Gwen, we've run out of time, unfortunately, because I feel like we could talk for longer, uh, but maybe you'll come back. I'd love to. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Ramon, final, final words, not about voting. Is my mic on? Your mic is back oh, on. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yes, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to, to have Gwen as a, as a classic liberal. You're like the worst, the, the least worst of the democratic bunch. So <laughs> thank you for coming. And, um, I really hope. What people, a compliment, eh? Yes, the least worst. <laughs> the least worst. I think that that's a new Twitter bio right there. Uh, all right, so just like to, to think of myself as a feeling libertarian. <laughs> ah, yeah, um, no, feelings. What are, what are those things? Uh, right, so uh, that's it for the show this week. Thanks for joining us. You can uh, send your emails to uh, Renegade Report Mailbox at gmail dot com. You can catch us on Twitter. That's Renegade underscore Report. We're also on Facebook, so you can like the page. Uh, you can find Ramon at Ramon Kabanak. You can find myself at Jonathan underscore Wit. And you can find Gwen at Gwen and Gwenya. Uh, thanks for joining. Central. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.